Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength and Weakness. Well, with that, please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we come to you today expectant to hear from you, knowing that when your word goes out, it accomplishes what you send it to accomplish and it doesn't come back void. So Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, as we read it, as we consider it, that it would have its full effect in our lives today, that it would transform us, encourage us, instruct us, and refresh us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us attentive minds and receptive hearts as we turn to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. L. Ron Hubbard was a writer of science fiction novels, but in 1948, while speaking at a conference, a convention for science fiction writers, he told the crowd gathered there that writing novels for a penny per page, he said, is ridiculous. And here's what he said. If a man really wants to make a million dollars, the best way to do it would be to start his own religion. That's what he said. And two years later, L. Ron Hubbard did exactly that. In 1950, he published a book called Dianetics, which laid the foundation for his new religion, which he called Scientology. Now, in order for people to practice this new religion of Scientology, they had to sign up for treatments where they'd be hooked up to this machine called an e-meter, which L. Ron Hubbard claimed had the ability to read your thoughts. The only thing was, to take these treatments, you had to pay a lot of money, but you had to do them all the time. Right? So these treatments were expensive, but L. Ron Hubbard said, if you pay the money and take the treatments, this machine will heal you from your past traumas, and it will allow you to attain godlike status. It will give you the ability to heal yourself and to heal others at will. It will give you the ability to make yourself get younger rather than older and actually become immortal to the point where you will never die. Furthermore, Hubbard realized that there was this, this new thing that the fast food restaurants were doing at the time called franchising, right? So he created a franchise system similar to the fast food restaurants where entrepreneurs could purchase and then operate branch locations which would administer these expensive treatments with his special machine. So not only was he making money by charging people to do the treatments with the machine, but he also made money by selling and operating these franchise locations. So despite the fact that L. Ron Hubbard clearly, openly, blatantly said that he made this whole thing up just to make money. And despite the fact that there was absolutely no evidence to substantiate any of his claims or to give proof that any of the things he said were true, people did this, right? And L. Ron Hubbard became rich beyond any of his wildest dreams. Now, L. Ron Hubbard was certainly not the first person nor the last to use religion in order to get rich. Throughout history, and even in the Bible, we read about people who took advantage of others in the name of God for their own personal gain. And this is why many people are hesitant or perhaps even leery of any church that brings up the topic of money. 
I was talking to a friend this week, and he said that he went into a coffee shop recently, and he saw somebody reading the Bible. So he stopped and asked the man what he was reading about in the Bible. And as they got to talking, the, the man who was there reading the Bible in the coffee shop said that he was interested in Jesus, he was interested in reading the Bible, but he didn't want to go to any church because churches are led by people who just want your money. What this man longed for, in other words, was something pure, something unadulterated, something true, devoid of manipulation and ulterior motives. You see, but the thing is this. If that man would continue to read the Bible, which I hope he does, you know what he's going to find? As he reads through books of the Bible, kind of like we're doing in our study of 2 Corinthians. As you go through books of the Bible, what eventually happens is you come across a lot of passages that talk about money. You see, in fact, Jesus himself talked about money quite a bit. And you know why? It's because money is a really big part of our lives. It's a big part of your life. Listen, you work to make money and you spend money. You spend money both on things that you need for shelter or for food, but you also spend money on things that you want and things that you enjoy. See, when you earn money by doing work, that money you earn represents your time, efforts, energy, and talents. And so in a very real sense, how you spend your money is how you spend your life. How you spend your money is how you spend your life. How you spend your money is a reflection of what you value. And for this reason, money has a very significant spiritual significance, has a very real spiritual significance. And what the Bible tells us is that how you spend your money not only reveals what's in your heart, but it's actually something that you can take hold of. It's something that you can use. You can use the power of money to actually direct your heart in good ways towards the things that God cares about. And we're going to talk about that today. But listen, today we come, as we study through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, we come naturally to one of these passages in the Bible that talks about money and giving money specifically to the work of God through the local church. But here's what I want you to see as we study this passage. I want you to see that despite the hucksters, you know, the charlatans like L. Ron Hubbard and others, what God's word has to say about money is actually radically different. And it's actually beautiful. And it's actually good for you. Let me tell you one last thing. This passage that we're looking at today, um, it's actually had a profound impact on my life personally over the last many years. Not long after I moved to Hungary as a young man, as a missionary, I read this passage and I became convinced that I needed to start giving to the work of God through the church that I was a part of. Now, I had very little money at that time, and I knew that if I started giving some of my money away, I would have even less money than I had before. But as I studied this passage, I became convinced that this is what God wanted me to do. Now, the church hadn't asked for it. They hadn't told me that I had to. They actually had no idea what I did with any of my money. But I remember the first time I did it. I went into the church when nobody was there, and I put this money in this offering box. And you know what I felt? I felt this, like, surge of adrenaline. Because here's why. I knew on the one hand that what I was giving to was good and worthy, but I also knew it was going to force me to make a sacrifice. I was going to have to change the way that I lived because of what I was doing. And I'll tell you this. As I've continued this practice over the years, 
I got to tell you, I do not regret it. I don't regret a single cent that I've ever given to the work of God through a local church or through a ministry. And it is something that God has used in my life to shape me in good ways and to draw me closer into his heart. So I'm excited to study this passage with you today. The title of today's message is The Act of Grace. And here's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. We're going to see that generous giving is a mark of genuine love in the likeness of Christ. So generous giving is a mark of genuine love in the likeness of Christ. I'd love it if you'd write that sentence down. Take that thought with you as you go today. That'll be our summary sentence, but it's also our outline for studying this passage. So generous giving is a mark of genuine love in the likeness of Christ. Let's look at the first part of that. Generous giving. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So remember that 2 Corinthians, this book we're studying, is a letter that Paul the Apostle wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Corinth. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 7 that we looked at last week, one of the things Paul was talking about was how he had taken a trip, he had traveled to the region of Macedonia. Now, Corinth was in the historic region of southern Greece called Achaia. But the northern part of Greece was, and still is to this day, known as Macedonia. Now, some of the cities that you might have heard of in that region of Macedonia include places like Philippi or Thessalonica, other cities which Paul the Apostle visited. He wrote letters to the churches that were founded in these cities. Those were in the region of Macedonia, which is northern Greece. Now, the region of Macedonia, we know from Roman writings from this time, we know that it was famous for being one of the poorest regions in the entire Roman Empire. Furthermore, Macedonia was a place where Christianity was heavily persecuted. For example, in the book of Acts, we read about how Paul, when he went to Philippi, he was imprisoned and he was arrested, right? We read about how in Thessalonica, Paul was chased out of the city by a mob that wanted to kill him. Even in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, Paul talks about how now on this time, as he returned to the region of Macedonia, he said he faced much affliction, fighting without, fear within. In other words, this was a place where it was dangerous and scary to be a Christian. And yet Paul says here in verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. What is this grace of God that Paul is referring to here? Well, listen, as Christians, we often use this phrase. We say that we are saved by grace. That's a good phrase, and it comes from the Bible. And here's what it means. It means that our salvation, our right standing before God, is not something that we get as a result of our own good works God's acceptance of us, his forgiveness of our sins, the redemption of our lives, eternal life. These are not things that we earn or work for or merit. These are things which God gives us as a gift of his grace. See, that's what grace is. Grace is something that God does for you or God gives to you as a gift. I'll say it one more time. Grace is something that God does for you or God gives to you as a gift. And that's not just limited to salvation. So here in verse 1, when Paul says, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given to the churches in Macedonia, 
He's not talking about their salvation. He's talking about a specific ability or strength that God was giving to the Macedonians, something he was doing inside of them to face this particular situation that was going on in their lives. So what was the situation into which God gave them grace? Well, look at what it says in verse 2. It says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So despite their poverty, despite their persecution, the Macedonian Christians were overflowing with joy because of the hope that they had in Jesus, and their joy resulted in generous giving. The ability to give generously was the result of God's grace at work in their lives. Now, the context of this generous giving in which this giving was done was a special collection that Paul had been organizing in order to help the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. You see, back in Acts chapter 11, we read about how at this time there had been a famine in Jerusalem. And the Jerusalem church also, we read in the book of Acts, they also had an ongoing ministry and an outreach where they were providing for the needs of a large number of widows who were particularly in need. And so in order to provide financial aid and assistance to the church in Jerusalem, to help those who had been affected by the famine, and to support the ministry and outreach of the church to these widows, Paul had been organizing a relief effort to provide financial assistance for the church in Jerusalem from the other churches outside of Israel. Another reason why Paul wanted to do this, though, why he wanted to send this financial gift to the Christians in Jerusalem is because at that time, there was a lot of tension between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians. And Paul thought maybe this could be a gesture of good faith, right? Kind of an olive branch to try and bridge the gap and bring unity between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is telling us, he's telling the Corinthians about his trip to Macedonia and how when he went up to Macedonia, he was just blown away by the incredible generosity that the Macedonians had showed in how much they gave to this special offering he was taking. Look at what it says in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You know, verse 5 there is a really important verse. And I hope you'll kind of zoom in and focus in on verse 5 and notice what it says. Notice it says, what was exceptional about the Macedonians was that they first and foremost gave themselves to the Lord. That was the first and foremost thing they did. They gave themselves to the Lord. And friends, here's what I want you to hear and what I want you to know today. What God wants from you, first and foremost, is not your money. Listen, God doesn't want your money, first and foremost. You know what God wants from you? God wants you to give yourself to him. If you haven't done that yet, that's the first thing you need to do. The message of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus Christ, God gave himself for you. Jesus came to do for you what you could not do for yourself in order to save you. 
He lived his life and gave his life for you. And when you really understand that, when you really get what Jesus did in giving his life for you, in love for you, the only appropriate response is for you in return to give your life to him. So listen, if there's anyone here today in any of our services or online who's listening to this and they say, oh, great, another church that just wants my money, please hear me say this. We do not want your money. Let me say it again. We don't want your money. You know what we want? Here's what we want. We want you to give your life to God. That's what we want for you. That's the message for you today. If you haven't done that, that's the first and most important thing that you need to do. To give your life to God means to surrender yourself to his will, to surrender yourself to his desires for your life. It's to say, Lord Jesus, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Rather than resisting God and living for yourself, giving yourself to God means surrendering yourself to him and living for him. So the first and most important thing God wants from you is that you would give yourself to him. And by the way, that is something that you can do right now. Where you're sitting right now, you can pray right now and say to God, God, I give you my life. And here's the thing, though. When you give yourself to the Lord, you can't really go around like thinking in these terms about things about your life that says, well, this is mine and this is the Lord's. As if you're, you know, dividing things up. Well, this part of my life belongs to God and this part of my life belongs to me. No, listen, you just gave your life to the Lord, right? You gave yourself to God, not just certain parts of your life, all of your life. And you know what else that includes? It includes your finances, which indeed are a very big part of your life. Because the Macedonians had given themselves over to the Lord, that affected the way they viewed and used their money. And notice how they gave. It says they gave according to their means. In fact, they gave beyond their means. And notice this. It says there in verse 3, they didn't do this out of compulsion. It wasn't because Paul was twisting their arm or, you know, you know coercing them into it or, or putting a guilt trip on them. No, it says in verse 3 that they gave of their own accord. Now, look what Paul says to the Corinthians about their giving, right? Until now, he's been talking about the giving of the Macedonians. Now he says, hey, Corinthians, now let's talk about your giving. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Having told the Corinthians about the example of the Macedonians, Paul now urges the Corinthians that they should also excel in what he calls this act of grace. The act of grace Paul's referring to here is the act of generous giving. And it's interesting, but it also makes sense that Paul would call this an act of grace. Because remember what we said, grace is a gift. Therefore, the act of grace is the act of giving. Specifically, what Paul has in mind here as he writes this passage, he's talking specifically about financial giving. But I want you to know, this also applies to all other forms of giving and generosity as well. The Bible tells us that every good thing 
that we have, that you have in your life, every good thing you have is a gift of God's grace. And Jesus told his disciples, freely you have received, therefore freely give. In other words, if everything you have has been generously given to you by God, then that leaves no room for stinginess in how you relate to others, right? You've received generously, therefore give generously. Now to those who would say, hey, listen, it wasn't God who gave me what I have. Rather, it was my superior intellect and my superior work ethic. I just work hard and I'm smart. That's how I got the stuff I have. Well, to that I would say, okay, sure, but you know what? Who gave you the ability who gave you the opportunity to do that work that you did? You see, if you had been born in almost any other place in the world, if you had been born at any other time in history, things would have looked very different for you. It was God's grace to you that you were born where you were born, when you were born, and that you have the abilities and the relationships and the opportunities that have come into your life. And so in response to God's grace to you, Having first given your life to him, God then calls you to excel in the act of grace, which is the act of generous giving. Now, when it comes to financial giving, the Bible gives us some very clear principles. I've got three for you, which come from this passage and from some related passages. So three clear principles from the Bible on the topic of giving. And that is this. The Bible teaches us that our giving should be, first of all, regular. Secondly, it should be proportional. And third, it should be worshipful. So regular, proportional, and worshipful. First of all, our giving should be regular. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul tells the Corinthians that every time they gather on the first day of the week, they should take an offering. So their giving to the work of God through their local church should be regular. It should be a regular part of their routine and their lives. It wasn't haphazard. It was systematic. It was planned out and part of their budget, right? Their budget that they gave every week. Now, this is the same thing that we see in the Old Testament, where every Israelite person was to give part of their regular income to the mission of God for the people of God and to the nations through the ministry of first the tabernacle and then the temple. Now, along with being regular, the Bible also teaches us that our giving should be proportional. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read that the Macedonians gave according to their means. Now, keeping in mind that the Macedonians, Paul told us, right, that they were extremely poor, that means that the amount that they might have given, it might have been small monetarily compared to what other people who had more money would have been able to give. But proportional to their income, they gave a lot. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, we read about a time when Jesus sat down at the temple and he watched as people brought in their gifts to the temple and placed them in the offering box. And as he was sitting there, he saw many rich people put in large sums of money, but then he saw a poor widow come in and put in two small copper coins. And he called to his disciples and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. 
Now, those two copper coins that that woman put in the offering box, that wasn't a lot of money, right? That was probably enough money to keep the lights on in the temple for about 30 seconds. But proportionally, considering her means, considering what she had, she gave more than everybody else. So what that means for us, right? For us to give proportionally, what that means is that it means it would be a percentage of our income. Right? Because as your income fluctuates over time, as a percentage, it will always be proportional to what you have, proportional to your means. So our financial giving should be regular. It should be proportional. We see this in the Old Testament as well, where the people of Israel were called to give a tithe or 10%. So again, our, our giving should be proportional. It should be regular. But more, most importantly, it should be worshipful. It should be worshipful. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes to the Corinthians about giving, and here's what he tells them. He says, when you gather on the first day of the week, that you should give an offering. Now, the first day of the week is Sunday. And we know that the early Christians would gather on Sunday, the day that Jesus had resurrected, in order to worship, in order to study the scriptures together, and in order to take communion together. So what Paul's saying there is that financial giving is to be part of their worship. And that's why he says in verse 3 here in chapter 8, for example, the Macedonians gave of their own accord. It was their choice. It wasn't coerced or forced or manipulated. It was their choice because it was an act of worship. In fact, Paul says then in verse 4, he says the Macedonians actually begged for the opportunity to donate to this cause and give financially because this wasn't only a way that they could help some other people out. This was an act of worship unto the Lord. They were giving from what God had given them because God had been gracious to them and met their greatest need. And now as an act of worship, they got to be involved in God's work in the world by giving graciously and generously to help others. Now, let me just say this. This what we have here is a very different way of looking at generosity and financial giving compared to other religions in the world. You see, if you were to do a survey of world religions, here's what you'd find. You'd find that every religion in the world basically encourages financial giving and generosity. The difference, though, the difference with Christianity, what makes Christianity unique, is that whereas other religions say that giving and generosity are the way by which you procure God's good favor or earn God's blessing or fix your place or secure your place in heaven, Christianity would say, no, 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 something completely different. Rather, God has already done everything for you. God has been gracious to you. And now, in response to that, as an act of worship for what God has done for you, give yourself first of all to him, and then you get to participate in the act of grace by giving to God and to others from what he's given to you. You know, money is a powerful thing. It really is. It represents your time, your energy, your talents, and your efforts. And how you spend your money is truly how you spend your life. And when you give money that you would have spent on yourself in order to further God's work or to help other people, it's a sacrifice. But you know what? Worship 
always involves sacrifice. Do you realize that? Worship always involves sacrifice. But this is a sacrifice which will shape your life and shape your heart, shape your mind in a way that's really good and really important for you. I like how one person I know puts it. He always says this. He says, teaching us to give isn't God's way of raising money so much as it's God's way of raising kids. You know who those kids are? That's us. God is a good father. He wants to raise us to be certain kinds of kids. As our father, God wants to teach us as his kids to be more like him. And he is a giving God. And he calls us to join him in the act of grace, which is generous giving. You see, what happens is that as you give, it shapes you into a certain kind of person. And it shapes your life. See, as you give, you know what it does? It prevents materialism from getting its claws into your heart. It prevents selfishness from putting its roots down into your heart. As you give, it teaches you that life is more about just what you consume and what you do for yourself. You see, Jesus told us, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, for example, uh, if you don't own any stocks, you probably don't check that app on your phone that tells you about stock prices and stock markets, right? But as soon as you start investing in stocks, guess what? Now you're checking that app all the time and you're upset because the S&P 500 is down, right? Like in the same way, if you invest all of your treasure in yourself, guess where your heart and mind will be focused? You'll be focused on yourself. But if you invest, let's say, you give your money to support a ministry or to support a cause that's close to God's heart, guess what? You will become invested emotionally in that ministry. You'll be thinking about it cognitively. You'll be thinking about how's it going. You'll be praying for the success of that ministry. So an easy way to direct your heart and your mind to take hold of the power of money and use it for good in your life is to take your money and intentionally use it to direct your heart and mind towards the things that God cares about deeply. One of the most powerful ways for you to do that is through intentionally putting your money into things that God cares about. You know, as for how this works out practically, I'll just tell you what I do personally. Uh, even though I'm the lead pastor of this church, the first thing that comes out of my paycheck every single month is giving to the work of God through this local church. And I only tell you that because I want you to know that when I'm talking about this today, I'm not just talking about things that you guys better be doing, right? I'm not just telling you what I think you should do. I'm telling you what I do because I'm not just a pastor. I'm also a disciple. I'm a Christian. This is something that I do as well. These things are true for me. And I'll tell you what, I've experienced the goodness of this. The reason it's the first thing in my budget is because I believe that giving should be a sacrifice that shapes the way I live. It should be a sacrifice that shapes the way I live. Think about it like this. If I wait until the end of the month to see if I happen to have any money left over after I've done all the things that I wanted to do and could do, what if I say, okay, I got to the end of the month and there wasn't anything left? But if I start out by saying, this is the first, I'm going to give God the first, you know what it does? I later on, like halfway through the month, I'm like, well, I'm running out of money. So I guess that means I'm not going to be able to do some of those things that I could have done. You see, I'm, I'm having to make sacrifices because I've chosen to prioritize giving to the work of the Lord. And you know what? That's kind of the point. 
It should shape the way that you live. Giving should shape the way that you live. And it should shape you in a way, directing your heart in real and tangible ways. And that brings us to the second part of our sentence, which we find here in verse 8, which is that generous giving is a mark of genuine love. Verse 8 says this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul was urging the Corinthians to excel in generosity and giving, but he didn't want them to do it just because he told them to. He wanted them to do it out of genuine love, love for God and love for others. But this is what love does. Love gives. That is the action of love. It gives. And giving is an act of sacrifice. The most well-known verse in the Bible tells us that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only son. Romans chapter 5 tells us that the proof that God really loves us is that Jesus gave his life for us. And so when God calls us to give, he's calling us to love as he has loved, not only in word, but also in deed. And that brings us to the third and final part of our sentence, which says this, generous giving is a mark of genuine love in the likeness of Christ. In the likeness of Christ. Look at verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Since the act of grace is giving, when Paul talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's specifically referring to the giving of Jesus to us. Jesus is giving to us. And here's how Jesus gave to us. It says there in verse 9, Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. Now let me ask you this. When was Jesus ever rich? Do you remember reading in the Bible about a time in Jesus' life when he was rich? Jesus was born to a construction worker father and a teenage mother. He spent the first years of his life as a refugee in Egypt, hiding from a king who wanted to kill him. He spent the rest of his life in Nazareth, in relative poverty. And even during his ministry, he said that he had nowhere to lie his head. He didn't own a house. And even whenever he needed anything, he had to borrow it from somebody. Have you ever noticed that? He speaks from a borrowed boat. He borrows a room to have the Last Supper. He borrows a donkey to ride into the city. He never owned anything. He wasn't rich. So what does this mean when it says that Jesus was rich? Well, it's certainly not referring to his life here on earth. What Paul is telling us when he tells us that Jesus was rich, but that he became poor, this is a reference to the fact that Jesus is God. You see, Jesus is deity, is what it's talking about here. And how as God, Jesus left his heavenly home in order to come and walk our dusty streets. He left the comforts and glory of heaven in order to suffer cold, hunger, and pain along with us here on earth. The message of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus, God set aside his crown of glory to come to us and wear a crown of thorns so that through his sacrifice we might be saved. The ultimate act of grace. You see, it wasn't Jesus' poor economic status that provided salvation for us. It was that Jesus became poor spiritually for us. 
in our place. He took all of our sins upon himself and he paid the price for them. At the cost of rejection, ridicule, betrayal, and suffering, culminating in the agony of the cross where God laid the judgment for our sins upon him. He became poor spiritually for us so that we who were spiritually bankrupt before God might become rich. He imputed his riches to us. He transferred the riches of his righteousness to your account, not only to pay your debt before God, but to give you abundantly more than you could ever ask or imagine so that spiritually your cup overflows. In the letter of 1 John, John tells us that the life of a Christian is marked by love in response to God's love for us. And if you have been a recipient of Jesus' ultimate act of grace in which he loved you so much that he gave himself for you, now you get to respond. You get to respond first by giving yourself to him and then by becoming a conduit of his grace to others, the means by which other people get to experience God's grace through you and through your actions of generous giving. So this week, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to give yourself to God and to make generous giving part of your worship and part of your interactions with others. Friends, generous giving is a mark of genuine love in the likeness of Christ. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.